Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This week's guest on the Playmakers Playbook, one of Australia's most popular cricketers, and it could be argued one of the most underrated at his best, he was a fearsome fast bowler, teaming with Glenn McGrath to destroy batting orders across the globe. This is the Playmakers Playbook, brought to you by BuildCorp, protecting their people and projects through adaptability and proactive safety. I'm Nick McArdle, host of the Playmakers Playbook. If you're looking to become a better leader in business or sport or even at home with the family, this podcast is for you. Jason Gillespie played 71 test matches and 97 one-day internationals before becoming one of the world's most respected coaches. He knows all about persistence and self-belief, having battled injury throughout his career. He played under some of Australia's greatest captains and has carved a reputation for building great team environments and culture. It's also worth noting this interview was recorded before the latest details of the racism row that's engulfed Yorkshire. Spinner Azim Rafiq has claimed he was racially vilified. Jason Gillespie was coaching Yorkshire at the time and Rafiq has singled Dizzy out for his unwavering support. We begin with a career highlight in what turned out to be Jason Gillespie's very last test match. Across the line, it does. It's four runs, he's got 200. Oh, he's got 200. Jason Gillespie is running all the way down. He's scratching himself, he's enjoying himself. Well played, Jason Gillespie. 201 not out. Everybody's laughing and they have declared he's coming back like a Roman warrior. He's just slain 100 dragons and he's walking back. Isn't that a great moment? April 2006, Jason Gillespie, 201 not out. The first night watchman in the history of Test cricket to make a double century. Probably really should be remembered as one of the great all-rounders. Dizzy, welcome to the Playmakers Playbook. Oh, thanks, Nick. And I'm so pleased you mentioned my double hundred. I, I always try to work it into a conversation, but uh, but the fact that you've done that for me is fantastic. Thanks, mate. I've made, I've made it easy for you. It's funny, though, isn't it? Like 71 test matches, 259 test wickets, and, um, and people just want to talk about your double century in, in your last test match. Yeah, it's, it's a strange one, that. But I, I suppose the, 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 the real positive is that people want to actually have a have a chat to me uh, about my cricket. Um, ideally, I'd lo- love to talk a little bit more about my bowling because that's <laughs> something I put a lot of time and effort into and it's, it's how I got into the Australian side, I suppose. But, um, but look, if, if people are talking about my career and talking about 
our great sport in general, then yeah, I'll talk to them about anything, even my two hundred. <laughs> Happy days. Well, we're going to uh, we're going to talk plenty about that career over the next forty minutes or so. Hey, what's it like being back home permanently after so long? Is you either were, were you know away permanently, or you at least had one foot in Australia and one foot in another country at various times? But being back home and being able to you know make up the nest and and uh, and live a little. Yeah, I, I'm really enjoying it since I finished up at Sussex. Yeah, it's the first time I, I, for a while I've been back in Australia full time, um, yeah, which is absolutely fantastic. So um, really, really enjoying it with, with uh, South Australia now, coaching the, the, the South Australian uh, state team and, and also the Adelaide Strikers. So I've done the Adelaide Strikers role for a few years now, um, but the, the opportunity to um, coach my home state, South Australia, uh, be home full time. That that is certainly certainly was a carrot as well. Um, but certainly, the overriding emotion was to, you know, try to help South Australian cricket improve. Um, and the fact that I can uh, be home in South Australia full time is is just absolutely brilliant. You had so much success in England, as you said, um, leaving Sussex to come home. But you know, even during your time at Yorkshire, and that's what we'll talk a bit more about. Um, the people of Yorkshire absolutely loved you, as they did Darren Lehman before you. W- was it hard to leave England? Yeah, it was. Um, it, it really was, Nick. Uh, I loved my time in county cricket. Um, grew uh, very fond of, of Yorkshire, certainly. So, so to leave Yorkshire at the end of the season 2016 was it was a really difficult uh, decision. Uh, I'd had five years at the county. We'd had a bit of success uh, on the field. Um, made a lot of lifelong friends. Uh, you know, we'd bought a house and, you know, the kids were settled at school. Um, our youngest daughter was actually born in Leeds. Um, so it, it wasn't a straightforward decision. Um, in part, it was, it was cricket. I was really enjoying my job, um, but just felt that I'd probably done as much as I could do to, to help the team and help the club. Uh, and also, you know, the, the family factor, I, I think, you know, my wife and, you know, our, our kids were, were getting a bit bigger and a bit older. Um, and we, we just thought, right, we, we, what does the next 10 years look like in terms of their life and, and, and what we want for them? And I think the overriding emotion was to be back uh, at home. And uh, so that made the decision a little bit easier. Um it was tough for purely from a selfish point of view. I, I loved coaching in England. It was great fun. I really enjoyed it. I learnt a lot. Um, and, you know, I've taken those lessons, you know, going forward from my time at Yorkshire. And then I had, had a few years there at Sussex. Um, certainly helped shape me as a, as a coach and, and as a person. And um, so, yeah, it, it was a tough decision, but I, I believe it was the right one. That time at Yorkshire, that... That was probably, if you look back at it, what really put you on the map, wasn't it? You enjoyed great success there. Yeah, we did. I, I, I got there at the end of 2011, um, at the start of the 2012 season, and and the club had been um, had dropped to Division Two, got relegated. Um, there'd been some change in, in personnel off the field as well as on the field. Um, so it was a new coaching staff and myself and Paul Farbrace uh, had, had come to the club as first team and second team coaches. Um, and, you know, I was, I was 
it was pretty simple. And Jeff Boycott was the president at the time, and he made it very clear what the expectations were. The, we had to get back into Division One uh, straight away, and and we had to win the county championship. Um, so there, there was uh, there was a lot of expectation, um, and you know we, we we had to find a way to to not only survive um, but actually thrive and and win games of cricket and. Um, you know, there was a bit of a mindset change um, there, certainly. And I, I certainly looked from a real positive point of view that, you know, um, you know, rather than try to get into positions of games where we get to a position where we can't lose and then we'll try and win at the back end of the game, you know, I tried to change the mindset. And I did uh, that, you know, we go out to try and win and, and you know, we've got to take some risks. And, and you know, if we lose, well... Well, that happens, but I'd, I'd rather lose trying to win than um, than just drawing lots of games. And um, you know, and I feel the, the players actually learnt more from that about their game and, and and how they went about it. And you know, we we took some risks. We we offered to chase big totals, and but you know, you give the players the the backing and the belief, and and you never know what can happen. Well, you um, you certainly um, took Jeff Boycott's instructions on board because within one season you were back in in Div One. Season two, you finished runners up to Durham. Season three, you won the title. Season four, you backed it up and won again. And season five, uh, you, your final season there, you were just knocked off at the death by Middlesex. So there's a lot of success there, particularly when you put it in context where the the team had come from. What was at the heart of the success? What what were the pillars that you put in place? To, uh, to achieve that? I guess you've touched on one in terms of positive cricket, but what were the other things? One thing that was really important and I found very early on was um, the, the playing group were a little bit battered and bruised and it was a little bit fractured and, um, you know, not everyone was on the same page uh, on and off the field. And so that was really important for myself as head coach to come in and instill a sense of unity and, and everyone moving in the same direction. Um, and, and a really simple example is, um, you know, without naming names, you, 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 players could play off um, teammates or play off support staff against each other. And, um, and pl- players had been doing that in the past. Um, you know, I made it very clear with all our support staff that we, we all needed a united front and a, a clear voice and, um, if there is any of the, um, the negativity and the moaning and that and players trying to, um, trying to find ways, we called it the wriggle room, the, and uh, try to remove the wriggle room. If a player has an issue, rather than complain about it and you know, behind the scenes, to actually come forward and have a, have a conversation. So I, I directed all that towards me and... So, look, if, if anyone has an issue, if any of the players have an issue, tell them to come to me and we'll, uh, we'll nut it out. And um, So, it's just getting that everyone, basically everyone on the bus, to use a, mm. a simple, uh, you know, term of phrase, have everyone on the bus and moving in the same direction. And, and I thought that, that, was, that was a really important thing. And then, you know, after the first year, we, we, we knew that if we were going to not just survive in Division 1, but actually thrive and and win the county championship, we knew we needed to take 20 wickets. So we did, we target recruited a couple of uh, seam bowlers in Liam Plunkett and Jack Brooks. Um, 
which was really important. Um, we also got Andrew Hodd from Sussex, um, wicketkeeper batsman, because um, we had uh, Johnny Bairstow who was just starting to make a name for himself um, with England, um, but we just didn't have um, a day-in, day-out uh, wicketkeeper batsman um, at the club and um, wanted someone who you know could do the job behind the stumps, was full of energy, real positive influence, and Andrew Hodd was... Um, someone that we identified and uh, and got on board, and and he was a really important cog in the Yorkshire engine in those years um, that that I was at the club because Johnny was away playing for England a lot, mm. um, and the county seasons are, are a lot and uh, are, can be hard work at times, and they're, they're long seasons, and and you need positive uh, influences around the dressing room and and positive energy, and and Andrew Hodd certainly fitted that bill, so. You know, you, you target certain uh, players to complement your staff. Um, you know, and we and we address that. Um, and certainly with uh, Brooks and Plunkett, we we targeted. We, we wanted to take twenty wickets, and we felt that those two guys could contribute strongly. And 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 you know, a couple of uh, voices around the dressing room that, that um, from outside the club, just to give guys who are at the club a slightly different perspective. And um, you know, different different ways of going about things. And um, and then it was all about just going out and, and playing the best cricket we could be, we could uh, play and leave no stone unturned, so to speak, and um, just give it our very best. And, uh, and, and, and it was as simple as that, really. So what were the periods in your playing career that, um, that gave you great insight into the things that work as a team, as a coach, as a culture, you know, if you you think back to the great teams and you, you know you played mm. in one of the great teams, didn't you? Really, you were lucky to do that. You were such a big part of that. But you know, throughout your playing career, individuals perhaps that you have drawn on as a coach, or cultures that you've drawn on as a coach. Yeah, most certainly. Um, and and I, I think you take bits and bobs from from everyone that you that you come across, and certainly from a coaching point of view. Um, you know, my my first coach at, at state level, Jeff Hammond, Bomber Hammond, he was a um, he was a great uh, mentor, great influence on me personally. Um, he was very much he was a he was a bowler's coach. He he understood, you know, and and I think that that kind of in South Australia at the time, we had a, a good group of experienced batsmen who essentially led by our captain Jamie Siddons. They all tended to look after themselves and. And we're able to manage it. We had a vastly experienced group of senior batsmen, um, but we had quite an inexperienced bowling lineup. So Bomber took us under his wing, myself, Shane George, Mark Harrity, Blocker Wilson, and the like, um, and and really took us under his wing. So his man management of us, I think, was excellent. So learnt learnt a bit about that. Um, I thought uh, I really enjoyed John Buchanan uh, as a coach. And, and the reason I really enjoyed John was, um, you know, he, he knew as coach of the Australian side, he wasn't necessarily going to teach um, individual players how to play the game better, um, but he could challenge thinking and, um, you know, and, and have a plan. And, uh, you know, he used to always talk about the, the pinnacle, you know, Everest and, you know, how, how can we as a team move from base camp up to, to Everest and you know win the ultimate prize and um, and, and I suppose that planning and that um, that process I think uh, of, and goal setting and um, you know so, and challenge you know conventional thinking and 
um, and challenge individuals. Um, yeah, maybe some guys didn't quite enjoy that, <laughs> certain individuals. <laughs> um, but uh, but look, I, I I certainly gained a lot from that, and and I think a lot of players who played in our era um, really enjoyed um, some of the things John John did. And then you go from coaches to then um, like players you played with and against captains. Um, they all bring bring something, don't they? Um, so you know, look. I was fortunate enough to play under Mark Taylor, Steve Waugh, Ricky Ponting, uh, Adam Gilchrist uh, uh, was also a captain for a few Test matches. And and each of these guys all, um, I think, shape you as a player and as a person. Um, and you know you take little bits and bobs from each of them, and um, and go from there, I suppose. And um, and are they different? Yeah, are they, the, those those guys that you mentioned there are they are they very different? Yeah, yeah, different, but all all are very driven characters. Um, and, and I think at times as well, you have to appreciate that. Um, in my specific case, Nick, I, I had different captains at different stages of my career, so. Um, you know, so certainly Mark Taylor, for instance, I was a young kid and um, just starting out my journey in international cricket. And, um, so I, I kind of almost look at Mark Taylor through rose-coloured glasses as a skipper. And I'll tell you a quick story. I, I remember um, playing in Perth against England early in my career and I got belted one evening by Graham Hick and Mark Rampracash and I had nine overs for 69, I think, and I thought my career was over. And... Uh, the next morning, Tubby just uh, said to me, oh, Diz, you take the new ball or you start off today, mate. And, um, you know, just, just gave me a pat on the back and, um, you know, basically said, you know, you've done the work, just just adjust your length and, and you'll be fine. You'll do the job for the team. And, and he his relaxed, calm demeanour um, and just waddled off the first loop and um, just gave me that backing and belief uh, and then, you know, I went out and took some wickets and it was great. And um, after thinking that my career was over, um, just that backing and belief and, and you know, that, that, that moment probably as, as, you know, I've remembered that, you know, ever since. And, you know, that kind of in part shaped part of my coaching philosophy because, I, I you know, my strong thoughts on that are that, you know, the, the, one of the most important tools you have in your coaching kit bag is one that when players a player knows that you genuinely back them up, back them in and believe in them you know I think that's that's a really important tool in your coaching kit um, when a player knows that you know you genuinely believe in them um, and and I certainly felt that as a player in that situation with with Tubby Taylor and then it went on to Steve War and Steve were again just me personally, and, and I know he did it all his players, but you know, for me, he, you know, you felt like you could run through a brick wall for the man. Mm. Um, that's how he made you feel, and um, you know, and I think that's really powerful. And, and I try to try to do that as a coach. Um, you know, I'd love nothing more than you know, I remember um, coaching at Yorkshire, and you know, Paul Farbrace was our second second eleven coach, and he took some players for one to one sessions during the winter, and he he had a specific batting session with one of the batters just with the ball machine and um i was just sitting around having a coffee and and i could hear them laughing and enjoy themselves and there was a lot of positive chat and um you know this particular player after his net he just sat down and he was taking his pads off and he had this silly grin on his face and 
and I just asked him, I said, uh, Rich, what, what was, what's good about, you know, working with Fabi with, you know, when, when you're uh, with his coaching, what does he do as a coach that, you know, you clearly had a really enjoyable session. And all he said to me, and it was very simple. He said, Diz, I have a session with Fabi and I walk out of there feeling that I could run, genuinely run through a brick wall. That's how good he made me felt, uh, feel at the end of the session. And, and I remember going away thinking about that and, and obviously on reflection, thinking about the captains and coaches that I'd played under. And I'm thinking, I want to be the coach that a player, if he's having a conversation with someone saying, you know, I, I'd love a player to say that to someone else that, oh, I could run it. He makes me want to run through, be able to run through a brick wall. And for me, that's really powerful. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's kind of the, the ultimate, uh, the ultimate um, compliment, isn't it? As a, as a coach, just an extension of that um, and allowing players to be themselves within the setup and within uh, the goals that you're trying to achieve. And particularly in cricket where, you know, technique can be so scrutinized and, and it can mm. be, almost overcoached. The individuality can be coached out of a technique. Now let's talk about Johnny Bairstow. You mentioned him earlier, um, mm. but I read where you kind of enabled him or empowered him to manage his own technique. And it, it's a little bit quirky sometimes the way he plays, you know, and he's obviously um, off the back of that become a star. Can you talk about allowing players to be individuals, even though it's a team sport? Yeah, and, and Nick, I, I remember that distinctly with Johnny. Um, Johnny had been with the England side for a period of time and, and he had his struggles there. And I, I remember actually watching him on TV and I was with a couple of the coaches at Yorkshire and we're watching Johnny bat and he had this really weird crab-like stance. His feet were really wide apart. His, his, he was holding the bat. He was crouched over his bat like he's his gloves were level with his, with his top of his pads and, or his knees. So he had his bat, he was holding his bat, he was crouched over and he has really wide stance. And, um, and he's come back into York, back to Yorkshire and, um, and we were just chatting about his game in general, how he's, and you could tell he wasn't feeling great. And, um, so I just asked him about his experiences in the England setup and, and he said, oh, look, I just, just feel there's so much scrutiny on me and my technique. I've been, uh, you know, this is how I've got to play. This is how I'm going to succeed, all this stuff. And, um, and you know, he, he, every time he'd have a net session, every second ball, there'd be someone barking in his ear about uh, this is how you've got to play. This is what you've got to do. This is this, you know, constant, constant um, feedback. And the way Johnny was just talking to it, uh, to me, just suggesting that he, he wasn't overly comfortable, and, and and I remember just saying to him, I said, "Well, how do you want to bat, and uh, what's comfortable for you?" And then he, he kind of demonstrated it, and I said, "Well, it's your career. Why don't you bat how you want to bat, and what's comfortable for you?" And uh, he sort of looked at me, go, "Oh, yeah." He said, I, I said, "Mate." I'll just judge you on how many runs you score. I, I don't care how you do it. You just your job is to score runs, and you know, I mean, basically, you, your job at um, scoring runs is your responsibility. My responsibility is to help support you in being able to do that. So I, I made a 
basically made a promise to him, you know, on behalf, you know, us as coaches at Yorkshire, um, we weren't going to talk to him about his technique. We were just going to talk to him about run making. We just instantly saw a happier player. Um, he was he was taking ownership for his game and and he was doing playing how he wanted to play. And we worked as a coaching team. That's probably the, the message I get to. It wasn't one individual. We'd all sort of talk, bounce ideas around, and um, you know. And, but how we get a message to a player, I think, is is really important. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Another player who, um, who paid tribute when you, when you uh, left um, Yorkshire was Ryan Sidebottom, the big left armour. And, uh, and he tweeted, I think, as you were leaving, he said that you had prolonged his career. He, he played his last test, I think, in January 2010. Um, and continued to play county cricket until 2017 and took more than a 1,000 wickets across his career. What was it about your approach with him that, that um, made him, I don't know, enjoy his cricket, wanted, made him want to, to stick around? What, what was it about Ryan Sidebottom and, and what did it say about the culture you'd created? City was, was an interesting one because in the end, it was about managing how much cricket he played. Uh, you know, a fast bowler playing county cricket. When when you've got a season that is 16 to 18 first-class games long, backed up with another 14 one-day games and then a whole 14 or so 2020 games, um, that's a lot of cricket for a fast bowler. And, you know, it's unrealistic to expect that a, a guy in his mid-30s is going to be able to um, manage that workload. Um, so after my first... First year, it was really just having honest chats with City, where he's at, what his goals are, and it became really clear to me with Ryan that um, his ultimate goal, you know, when when we dug down and dug deep into it and got to the real core of it, county cricket was his, you know, four day cricket was what he wanted, and a, and a county championship was something that really drove him. Um, so then that's when the conversation started about maybe we just pull scale back your commitments in the shorter forms of the game and uh you know Sid always liked to like to do lots of bowling um but it was managing everything around his bowling to get the best out of him because ultimately he, he was absolute gun bowler um who you know was still performing at an exceptional level in championship cricket we just had to make sure that he was as fresh as possible to be able to do his job with the ball for the team and um so yeah so cutting back his commitments in one day in T20 cricket, just managing his um, training loads, um, you know, and work around, giving him opportunity to spend time with his family as well as a, you know, a father with a couple of young kids. So just all those things put together. In the end, it would, I just think as a coaching staff we and support staff, we just managed him and his situation uh, really well. Hey, Diz, what about the issue of racism in cricket? You were very supportive of Azim Rafiq, the former England under-19 captain who accused Yorkshire of institutional racism. He singled you out for praise at the time, the way you supported him through that period of time. 
What about here in Australia? Dan Christian has talked about casual racism and what he's endured at times throughout his career. Were you ever the victim of, uh, of any sort of casual racism or any sort of racism when your Indigenous heritage became publicly known? No, I, I, I can honestly say I, um, you know, I, I think people are, are almost surprised when they find out that I'm um, of Indigenous heritage, um, which no, no one should be because that, that's just the way it is. I, I, I do remember a, um, an incident when I was in England. I was, uh, I was playing... Um, so this was after I finished playing. I was doing some media work in England and I was playing the odd game, charity games and the like, and I was at a at a function. And, um, you know, it, it came up that I was, um, you know, the first acknowledged Aboriginal player to represent Australia. And, and just these people were there. And, you know, I, I don't necessarily see it as, as racism per se, but it, it's more very much naivety. Because um, they go, oh, really? And I said, well, yeah, I'm, I'm Aboriginal. And they go, nah, you can't be. And I think, well, I think I'd know if I was. Um, you know, and, and, and I, look, I, I don't think there was a genuine, um, you know, I, I don't think it was that they were being negative. I, I think it's more naivety. It's they're, they're, they had an idea of what an Aboriginal looked like in their head and I didn't fit that bill, so it it can't can't be true. Um, so for me, this is where education is really important, uh, and we speak about that a lot um, with racism and, and these sort of issues. Um, these people couldn't get their head around the fact that I'm an Aboriginal man, and um, and and for me, that's just like real naivety. Um, so, and, and I know Dan on, on some sort of level, it, it's probably a little bit similar because I suppose because you, people look at us and they don't instantly go, oh, he's of Aboriginal descent. Um, but it, it doesn't mean it's, uh, it, it's right, you know, for, you know, people shouldn't really be thinking that way, should they? No, I think, I think Dan has actually acknowledged that and saying that more often, more often than not, it just comes from pure ignorance, pure lack of that, understanding. That's right. Yeah, that, uh, that's exactly right. But, but I mean, you you are to be congratulated though. You have become, whether you're kind of aware of it or not, but the fact that you um, talk about Indigenous cricket and um, you, you know you've had a lot to do with young Indigenous cricketers, you've kind of become a a leader. I don't know whether you intended to, maybe it's by default, but a leader in that area, you can have a huge influence for young cricketers. And it seems to be like an untapped resource almost. You, you, you look at the talent that, that is out there. Um, it is hard to believe that you are. There's, there's three of 634 test cricketers. There's three that are recognised as Indigenous and, and you are the only man. Surely the, the well is a lot deeper than that. Oh, there's no doubt that the well is, is deeper than that. Um, and I, I'm hoping one day that, um, you know, that a, a cap will be presented to, you know, or caps will be presented to more male and female Indigenous cricketers representing our great country. There's so many talented sports people out there. Um, I think 
I think Cricket Australia, they, you know, I think they have acknowledged, and to be fair to Cricket Australia, um, is they do, from time to time they do cop a little bit of criticism. But I think to be fair to them, I think they've acknowledged that they can do a lot more in this space. And, um, you know, so I, I think they're, you know, the conversations are starting and I think the Big Bash does a great job um, in promoting it. Um, I think, you know, Cricket Australia, I'm sure they're looking to the AFL um, is there's obviously, you know, we've seen the history of AFL. There's a lot of Indigenous kids and Indigenous uh, players that have come through and played AFL. Um, so, you know, I'm sure Cricket Australia will be tapping into the knowledge base of the AFL and, you know, what they do, the, the things they do. They, they do get out to the communities with uh, football programs. I know Cricket Australia have been getting out into communities with cricket programs over the years. Um, I think I'm right in saying, Nick, I think a while back, Matty Hayden, um, just when he finished playing, he, he put a bit of an emphasis on getting out there and, and promoting um, uh, cricket in Indigenous communities as well. So, yeah, he did. He did so, a lot of work up around the Tiwi Islands as yeah, well. Yeah, so, so there, there's, I think there's a lot of good intentions, but I think, we, I think what you're saying is we just want to see, see, see more players coming through and... Uh, and you know, if we can get some young kids seeing that, that playing cricket is a, is, a, is a viable option and it's a great sport to play, then hopefully we can see more um, down the track. Mm, or look at, um, you know, in, in the women, you look at Ash Gardner or, or Darcy Short certainly making mm. uh, a, a name for himself as well. Hey, just back to the um, the double century, and I'm not going to dwell on it. Uh, but but people always I'm happy for you to dwell on it, mate. <laughs> but but when they talk about um, your great individual performances, that often gets a mention, of course. But there was there was the Boxing Day Test. I've been looking back through it today. Boxing Day Test against the West Indies in 2000. And you, you finished with um, match figures, I think, of nine for 88, including six for um, in the second innings, and. It was one of the great overs that you bowled to Brian Lara that day. He, he was determined to leave everything, um, and you ended up bowling him. He didn't play, play a shot. Oh, bowled him. Keen bowled him. That's beautiful bowling. Jason Gillespie is bowling magnificently. Lara trying to leave everything. He picked the wrong one to leave that time. I'm sure there was a little bit of movement, but it sounded as if there was a bit of pad as well. Flick of the pad, I think it was, and under the stumps. That's Brian Lara's third duck of the series. The West Indies are in serious strife. How well do you remember that? I, I remember it quite well, actually. Um, and I, I wish I could say that, you know, was, I remember uh, watching back, someone had, had posted it and I watched it back. It was a great memory. And um, and the late, great Richie Benno was there um reviewing the footage and going back over the over him and Mark Taylor were, uh, were dissecting it. And, and, and the great man, Richie gave me a big rap about saying how deliberate it was me, you know, going across, 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 and then getting one to cut back um, with a deliberate movement of my fingers. And um, while the intent was there to force Brian across and then hopefully bring it back, it was, it was more in hope that, it hit the pitch and came back and straightened and uh, and hit the stumps rather than a deliberate movement of my, of my wrist and fingers. But um, but certainly the intention was there to, because my, the key for me was to land the ball in, in the same spot. And if the ball misbehaved, I, I, I literally just moved the seam position of the ball slightly 
uh, a couple of the deliveries in the over. And, and, you know, luckily if it hits a seam and just moves just a fraction, then you're in the game, aren't you? But the key was to get my line and my length right. And I managed, they did a pitch map and I, every ball I bowled was, you know, on a, on an area the size of a, a shoe. So I was, I was, I was happy with my execution of my skills there. And then, you know, you, you know, if you do that often enough, you, you get lucky. Well, I was um, I was going to ask you about whether you did actually deliberately set them up. I mean, and even if it wasn't exactly as uh, as it panned out, but you, you obviously had the intention. And the reason that I wanted to ask you about that, had a conversation with Stewie Clark uh, a couple of years ago, and he said that when he first um, went back to Shield, I think he captained New South Wales after he finished his Test career, he found that he had to spend most of his time at, at mid on or mid off and and help young bowlers. Um, to to set batsmen up and 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 think a batsman out, um, as a coach, is that something that you found is a bit of a lost art with the with the new generation? Is that something that you try and lead on? Uh, certainly, um, encourage all players to you know talk talk a lot more. I, I think in general, I mean, it's a generation like a lot of lads back. I suppose back when we were playing. Um, you know, lads didn't have smartphones and and the like, and all these devices to um, to utilise their time. So, um, you know, players tended to talk to each other a little bit more face to face and and have conversations. But certainly, as a coach, I you know I actively encourage um, lads to have cricket conversations as much as possible. And and certainly, as a coach, you. You know, if you've got an experienced seamer on the park, you, you want them standing at mid-on, mid-off as much as possible, um, especially if you've got a couple of young bowlers to to just be there and, and lend support. They might not have to say too much, but but certainly you want that. Um, but for me, as much as anything, you just want cricket conversations to be to be had. And uh, this is why I'm very big on as a coach. I, I want all players um, watching the game while we're batting. I, I like everyone together and... Because watch what's going on out there. Because you know the conversations you have in that viewing area or viewing uh, room, um, you know you learn from each other all the time about what's going on out there. You, you spend time talking to the lads, and and they have the conversations amongst themselves, and that that's how you learn. A couple of quick ones to finish with. Um, another great individual performance was I think it was eight for against South Africa in 1997. That was very early on in your Test career. It was Port Elizabeth, and the reason I remember that is. Um, I was working on that, on that tour on the road for Channel Seven, and that celebration was one of the all-time great celebrations that <laughs> night. Dizzy, do you do you have at least a vague memory of that celebration? I, I, I have a bit of a memory. Uh, we we referred to it as the stalk and the kill, and the um, I, Matty Hayden had, had cornered me and said, "Right, we need to want to you know um, do this in the dressing room just for a bit of fun and." Um, so I got we put the war paint on, which was Vegemite, and I think it was some cream and uh, some sun cream or some zinc or whatever. And yeah, we we replicated a stalk and the kill. It was uh, yeah, it was a bit bizarre, and maybe the uh, the few few too many Castle Lagers might have uh, might have been at play there. But but what a wonderful Test match that was, Nick. Ian Healy hit that six. Um, we were eight down. Um, I remember having to face five deliveries off. Jacques Callis, um, you know, I walked out the bat when uh, Warney got out, LBW, and, and I had five balls to face from uh, one end. And then uh, Heels was facing Hansi Cronier at the other, and he clipped one leg side. And 
because we needed five to win and he clipped it for six and uh, um, yeah, we won the game. It was a great moment. And after that, um, Heels actually gave me a, a signed photo. It's of him standing there, um, you know, holding his bat up and uh, and uh, he signed it to Dizzy. How did it feel? Uh, <laughs> Heels. And yeah, so I've got that. It's pride of place at home. Um it framed up that photo. It was one of the great quotes from Ian Healy too. He said, um, "He said I knew I had to do something special because we only had McGrath to come." So, <laughs> <laughs> and he was probably bang on there. To be fair, um, and just before I let you go, I, I, I do have to sort of make note of the injuries, and this this goes to um, persistence and and uh, and I guess the ability to to soak up things that don't go your own way, but keep working towards a goal. Um, the resilience you showed over what stress fractures uh, in your back and you had foot mm. problems and there were hamstrings and calves and then of course your broken leg when you collided with with Steve Waugh. How important is resilience for a young cricketer and and do we see enough of it nowadays? Yeah, uh, look, look, you're going to have setbacks. If you're a professional sportsman, there'll be setbacks, and, and my setbacks happen to be uh, on the injury front. Other other players have setbacks, you know, in, in selection or uh, illness or uh, bad timing or whatever. Um, everyone has their own setbacks in some description. Um, mine happened to be injuries. Um, I, I always took the philosophy and had the focus. Um, you know, I'd have my downtime. I'd be I'd be a bit down down in the dumps and a bit bit whingy and moany. Or why me? Uh, but that would pass quite quickly. Um, and then my focus would be right. What do I need to do to get back? And and then it was a step by step process. And and look, I, I'm a, I'm a big believer in in nailing your process, um, whatever whatever it is in our sport, whatever you do. So my process was to get back to full fitness. And and what what exactly do I need to do here? And map it out step by step. And then I would just focus on that process and. You know, I, I would see every training session that um, every rehab session that every training session that I got through and did to the best of my ability, I saw that as a win. You know, if you keep having these little wins, um, you're building up evidence, aren't you? Um, you know, and I, I use that with the players a lot, uh, with players a lot that I coach now. Um, you build up a bank of evidence, which, you know, ev- the evidence gives you the confidence. Um, so, you know, I, that's how I... I did it, and that's how, how I focused on getting back to to be in a position to bowl cricket balls because that's what I wanted to do, and I just had that drive and desire. And um, you know, I was fortunate enough that when I got back to fitness and I got back playing, that the the selectors um, obviously liked what they saw and, and and afforded me opportunities again. Well, you uh, you earned it, but you repaid the faith as well. Seventy one test matches, as I said earlier, two hundred and fifty nine test wickets and whether it be fellow players or fans or in my case working in the media anyone who's ever had a brush with you has thoroughly enjoyed it and uh, and you thoroughly deserve rather the success you're uh, you're enjoying at the moment so thanks very much for joining us on the playmakers playbook absolute pleasure nick always fantastic mate thank you jason gillespie great aussie all-rounder That's how I like to think of him anyway. The Playmakers Playbook is brought to you by Build Corp, where great teams are built on shared values. It's available wherever you get your favourite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. 
make sure you subscribe so you'll never miss a moment. Love you to give us a five-star rating, leave a review and help spread the gospel. If you liked it, tell a friend. I'm Nick McArdle. Join me next time on the Playmakers Playbook. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.